0: A warning. This episode of Residence contains coarse language, some sexual and drug references, and themes of mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. This is the third episode of a three part story. Anyone who's ever relocated to another country is familiar with the range of emotions that can come with it from anticipation, excitement, and fun disappointment
1: stress heartache and sometimes even trauma and then she admitted me to involuntary um, care at a psychiatric facility it was like this freedom that i had just got robbed from me straight away just stolen so there's a man guarding my door his name what's your name bro he's just told me i can't film on the patients, so i'm stuck in here they lock me up so the site the psychiatrist would just ask questions around you know, what happened to India, how are you feeling now? My brain was like a, a blender. It was just going non-stop. As you can see, I'm really fucking sick. I've got a mental condition. I've got psychosis. I've got bipolar disorder. I've got all this crazy shit that they're telling me. So I'm just going to go live now until I get to and on.
0: This podcast, it explores the question, what is home? Is it just a place of residence or something more than that? Welcome to The Residence Podcast.
1: Previously on Residence. I had the thought that this guy, I did not trust him at all. This guy can read my mind. And then the next... I don't know how long it was, 20 or 30 minutes, I went through these extreme emotions. And it was this intense fear of death that I would like start crying, like really intensely and being just like, like, I can't do this anymore, I can't do this. So I was getting further and further away from reality. But I think it has elevated me into this next level of like psychosis, where that night I thought I'd entered into a parallel universe and then he just grabbed my shoulders. And all I remember is this like shock and he was on the ground hurting and bleeding and I just like was like scampered away like almost untouched. And so I just paid like 2,000 US dollars to get an Emirates flight with like a two hour stopover in Singapore or whatever it is back to the Gold Coast at that time.
0: take your time and just tell me about when you the plane landed in Australia mm. and you're at the airport what
1: what happened from then my dad picked me up from the airport and this is a gold coast airport it was about a 30 minute drive back to byron and i remember feeling very um, very anxious in the car so i was just i was talking to my dad and explaining the whole situation they initially my parents initially thought that uh, that i was Held up because they had caught me the drugs, like at that security at one of the airports, Um, and that's why I'd missed my flight. And so he was pretty anxious to see me. And then I remember just wanting a cigarette like really bad when I was in the car. And I actually did it. I got my dad to drop me off at IGA even before I got back home. And I went in, and it was really interesting. I saw actually saw a friend who was working in IGA. And I had chat with him just about all this crazy stuff that had happened. And then I got some like menthol cigarettes and I told my dad that I just wanted to walk back home because I was over being in the car. And then I got close to home and then my mum like walked, ran out like a hundred metres from where my house is to see me. She's like, I just wanted to see you. And I was just there just chilling with a cigarette and just like, oh, I'm over this. This has just been a crazy journey. I just needed to relax.
0: Back in an environment he knew, Tim was still a far cry from the person he was when he left.
1: I was still very liberate, very, felt very free. My, my mind was very much still in the state that I was in, in India. That, that applied to most things, um, including just the excessive spending. My, my thoughts were racing all the time. Uh, I felt I didn't have any sense of planning I didn't I didn't know what I was gonna do tomorrow or the next day or a week after I just kind of did things so I remember just going out for a walk um, a couple of days after I got back from Byron and I just went to this like health store and I was like Charlie in the chocolate factory in this health store and just had this bag and I would just go and whatever I thought was interesting whether it was like a, an essential oil or like some natural shampoo or some supplements, I would just put it in the bag. And the bill ended up coming up to like $300 or $400. But that's just what, and yeah, that's just what I did. Like even going out into town, I just was liberated as smoke cigarettes. I ended up actually having some um, c- CBD. I went to my dad to Melanmimbi and we got some CBD oil or like CBD paste. And i remember just like putting the paste on the cigarettes and just smoking that and it would just chill me out and it would almost be a counterbalance to these racing thoughts that i had about i don't yeah i don't know just ideas of the f- ideas of what i was going to do um, what i wanted to buy um, experiences in india my brain was just like on fire all the time If you can imagine Your brain normally would be like you stirring a pot just with a a ladle or a handle. My brain was like a a blender. It was just going nonstop. And so if that applied to like not being able to sleep and yeah, it was just just absolutely crazy. Yeah, my, my family at this stage were very like worried about me and thinking, what's happened to Tim? This is a totally different person from like the reserved, relaxed guy. I was very uh, extroverted, just talking a lot. My thoughts were disorganized, but I was so happy. I was like so free in myself. I didn't care about anything. Didn't realize that my bank account was like in minus numbers and I had like $700 in debt to my parents. So I was in Byron for maybe a week And then I needed to fly back to Melbourne to continue my studies at university. And so I'd planned to move in with a good friend in a share house. Um, So I fly back and I move in with my, my friend and I say to my auntie for like a couple of days and she started noticing this as well. And I think she started having conversations with my dad about like what's happened to Tim. Um, He's just having like irrational thoughts. He's just talking about random stuff totally different behavior and my friend actually started thinking this as well and started talking to my dad in hindsight Um, and then at some point I realized that I had no money left and so I just started thinking of ideas of like how I could make money so just things like online poker but then I like I got together all of my stuff like all of these things that I collect from my travels and like would go to a pawn shop and try to sell them. I remember just having this big bag of just, like, random stuff, and the guy offered me, like, 15 bucks. And I had had zero money at this point. So it's things like that, Um, things like not having enough money to buy, get an Uber drive, and having to borrow friends' money just to get an Uber. I remember just, like, smoking at train stations. Um, And I was on, like, a bunch of dating apps. But then I would just... You know how you get... um, you, you might just get a, a bot or like a random message, not from a real person. I would start responding to them yeah. and that would like get me a bit of viruses and shit on my computer.
0: But um, you would think that they were real people?
1: Yeah, I would yeah. think that they were real pe- people that actually loved me. And one of those messages was just this heartfelt message of this woman in the Philippines who was just wrote that her, her mum had died of cancer and that she, um, yeah, she was stuck in this cam show she was stuck Mm. in this cam cam business in the philippines where a boss had like room set up a cam girl and just said that she needed money and i just bought and she was like i love you i love you and she just bought this or sold me this huge sob story Mm. and i like i I felt right into it i felt i need to help this person Mm. so i had zero money myself but i felt like i had to help her how old were you uh i was 24 Mm. 23 or 24 And there was, I mean, I had some crazy requests, like in order initially, um, this cam girl from the Philippines off, like said, Hey, I just need 800. My boss needs $800 and he'll set me free. And so I tried to get together $800 somehow to help save her. Do you think you would have
0: felt for that, felt for that if it wasn't, if you weren't, um, feeling the way you were, if you weren't dealing with everything you were dealing with?
1: No, because I think my conscious brain, my rational brain would have been, because even now I'd get like from Indian friends wanting me to send them money and to help them out. I was just living from emotions Mm -hmm. and I just responded very emotionally to that. I just needed someone to give me love, I think, because I wasn't receiving that from anywhere. My parents were looking at me like I was an alien and that I needed help. And I, in my own self, was very happy where I'm very free and just wanted to I don't, I don't know. I, just, I still felt like I wanted to help people. and I still connect with friends who connected with me. my family, I didn't feel very heard at that time. I didn't want to call my parents because I knew they weren't going to give me the money. So I called my sister to see if she would transfer over $800 dollars, and I disguised it by saying that I needed it to pay rent and then she said she didn't buy into it and she uh she just said no that's not i'm not i'm not doing that team you need to like take care of yourself but she would later fly down actually to help me and i remember just just coming to the realization i had no money i even like applied for a credit card now i'm so happy that that credit my sister actually came and she hid the i got the like a. The mail of the with the credit card, and she hid that from me. And I'm so glad she did that because I would have spent ungodly amounts with that credit card. Like I remember looking through car magazines and thinking, I'm going to buy that car, or I'm going to buy that house, mm. or I'm going to do that, and just one having no concept of money or that you know that will put me in debt debt, and I can't do anything with that. And you weren't that way before, were you at all? No, no. I was pretty conscious with my spending, um, and I had savings and plans of what, of what to do with money. Um, anyway, with this, this cam girl, I, yeah, I, I ma- managed to say, Hey, I don't have $700. And then I was still tutoring at this time at, at, at Scotch, um, as well. And I remember getting my pay slip for like $130. And so I sent her through that. And then she told me that she was able to escape from, the camp from the situation she was in, and then she just kept on demanding more, and then that's where that conversation kind of fizzled out. I actually called, I called her up, and I heard her voice, and I, that made me believe in it even more and more. Even though in hindsight I knew it was catfishing, but I heard she was like, "Thank you, Tim. You'll, say, you'll save my life," and she had a very gentle, and it made me feel all warm and fuzzy that I had helped her and things like that. But yeah, at this time, obviously, my parents were still very concerned about my mental health. And so I actually saw a doctor. Yeah, my dad and my auntie came to Melbourne and I ended up seeing a doctor. And I just felt very attacked all the time. And I didn't think there was anything wrong with me because I felt great. Like I felt fantastic. So you're living in Melbourne? Yeah, living in Melbourne at at the share house. Who are you living with? With two, well, one really good friend, Jack, who I'd met doing my music course mm-hmm. a few years prior, and then one of his friends.
0: And so had they noticed anything? Had they seen anything or said anything?
1: Yeah, so Tom had never met me before. Oh, okay. And he was 18 and quite young, but he knew something was up as yeah. well. Him and Jack were probably talking, and I think Jack knew. Just from
0: spending and saying stuff? or was it-
1: Just from, yeah, just from having conversations. Just... um my rage just being excited about everything Mm. just having this hyper manic just um it's hard to reflect on how i was then in this situation but from what i remember i would just talk about random stuff just around things that weren't even conceivable yeah and just, I would just, nothing would really make sense. Like I'd hear something and then I'd go on another trail of thought. I'd never finish my line of thinking. Mm-hmm. I would always just pick up on things and just tw- have rants all the time about different things. So that was very different from how I'm speaking now and how I was speaking prior to that. So, so they saw, said you should see a doctor, yes? saw the doctor and I just didn't feel comfortable with her at all i was kind of she just would ask questions about my history and what happened in india and then i explained that i saw a shaman and kind of what happened and that my because i've had ankylosing spondylitis and i was taking anti-inflammatories but i stopped taking them in india because i didn't I didn't need them anymore i'd like it i was sleeping fine and everything was working really well and so i said i'd been cured in india and then i felt like she just couldn't keep up with me and then she started asking about like whether i'd done meth or cocaine and then i kind of like associated that with me as if i had done that and i remember getting quite aggressive and angry and be like you know what do you know about this what do you know about mental health what do you know about drug use and so i went out of there being i think pretty angry but I was, I, I almost wanted to, I, I felt a lot healthier and I, I almost felt very, I felt powerful. Just, just because my mind was working so quickly that I felt like I was one step ahead of everyone. I remember playing like a game of chess and I could just see vision, like things ahead, like see seven or eight steps ahead. And I was always ahead of a conversation.
0: At the request of the doctor and to allay his parents' fears around his mental well-being. Tim went and saw a psychiatrist and the outcome of this visit would lead to something he could have never predicted.
1: Yeah, maybe a few days went by and she actually, a doctor, recommended me to a psychiatrist. And so, yeah, I was still at uni at this point and I was missing classes and then I thought to be nice to my auntie, I'd just go and see the psychiatrist just so my parents would stop bugging me and and doing this. I went and saw a psychiatrist in, I think it was Monash Hospital in Clayton. It was a difficult conversation. I remember um, going on a rant. So the, the psychiatrist would just ask questions around, you know, what happened to India, how are you feeling now, things like that. And I remember going on a rant about the need for Western medicine and Eastern medicine to integrate, and I, I'd learned a lot about Eastern medicine. And I just went on this uncontrollable rant where the psychiatrist couldn't keep up. And I remember her just like looking concerned. My auntie was there next to me and she just looked at my auntie and was very concerned. It was interesting. A lot of this stuff, I almost felt like a third person. It was like my family were talking about me or things were being told about me like as if I wasn't in the room. So I felt very unvalidated. I was almost like a objectified as someone with a mental health issue that's abnormal and then the psychiatrist, um, I think, stopped me. And I was, I was just writing frantically as well and got very aggravated by her presence. And what was, were you
0: writing when you were talking to the doctor? Like when you said you were writing really furiously, what were you
1: writing? I think I was just trying to make sense of the need for Eastern medicine. I, I, was, just, I was very anti-pharmaceuticals. I was very... Was, yeah, interesting you asked that because... I actually, they actually gave me the option, now that I remember, to, as long as I took medication, to, to be at home, for a nurse to come and visit me at home with regular medication. But I was so anti, like antipsychotic medication, any, farm, the whole pharmaceutical industry, I was just so against, and I was so for Eastern ways, Eastern medicines, taking natural supplements, natural ways of healing the body yeah. and I was so anti so the, the very th- and this is why I was trying to explain the importance of eastern medicine was because I did not want to take any drugs like I didn't didn't want to take anti-antipsychotic antidepressants and so because I was so anti that and also because my mind was racing that's why I think the psychiatrist put the stamp down and was like We're going to have to admit you to involuntary care. She admitted me to involuntary um, care at a psychiatric facility, which was, when I heard that, it was like my whole world changed. It was like this freedom that I had just got robbed from me straight away, just stolen. And so I was then sent to like a holding space um, to await a, an ambulance to like take me to Dananong Psychiatric Facility. So when I was in that holding space, I felt like this huge injustice. It was like, there's nothing wrong with me. I feel great. I don't know why. Why is my, I felt betrayed by my family that they, my auntie had helped conspire with the psychiatrist to send me to the psych ward. Um, and then I just wanted to feel heard. So I actually started a live stream on Facebook about my experiences, like starting in this holding space at Monash Hospital. As you can see, I'm really fucking sick. I've got a mental condition. I've got psychosis. I've got bipolar disorder. I've got all this crazy shit that they're telling me. So I'm just gonna go live now until I get to Dandenong and we'll see what happens. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to film everything and document everything when I was, when I was in there. So I remember doing like a self video blog, even starting there, on Facebook Live. And then video filming other patients, video and then like going to interview the guard that was there. Because there was a guard at the front to make sure that I didn't leave the holding space. So there's a man guarding my door. His name, what's your name bro? You're not
0: allowed to shoot other patients, you cannot film other
1: patients. He's just told me I can't film other patients so I'm stuck in here, they locked me up. Um, I've got my medical report here around here but yeah when i was in the holding space i I just felt so much there were so many emotions there was so much anger towards my family towards a psychiatrist towards a guard um and then there was a lot of and then i i was able to express that i think through the live video the live facebook blogs to my friends i could see who was joining and i was trying to interact with this community of friends that i'd established all over the world all like travelers were messaging me Alright, so I'm going live on Facebook. I'm here. So literally I have support from my friends all around the world. I've just released, you know, a freaking Australian-Filipino girl who was stuck. So I've got plans to take this to the tribunal, going to challenge their decision. I was helping people along the way, giving love to everyone, and now this is what I'm receiving. And I'm sure this Indian man I'm talking to right now has got the moral, moral dilemma. They all think, Tim, you're sick. Tim, you're sick, you know, you're not right. Getting this concern everywhere I reckon that's going to happen, it's, enough, it's, it's, it's going to be a huge story. I'll, connect, I'll talk to my friend in the Herald Sun tomorrow, I've got a mate from the uh, from England as and well, the UK journalist. Inside. It just felt like there was a fucking agenda, 10 minutes to take these medicines, we used needs to be admitted to a psych hospital, needs to go straight away. It was just a bullet of questions. And, it was and like, the nurses aren't doing anything, sick. I mean this place is absolutely Disgusting! Uh, and like, like, patients. You know, all the other patients. You know that's why go this I go in. That's why someone starts screaming. And it was like my shoulder was just And as soon as I went in there, it just felt like there was a fucking agenda. Like my parents had just been in her ear talking. You know, Tim needs to take these medicines. It needs to be admitted to a psych hospital. It needs to go straight away. It was just a bullet of questions. And it was like she was the king. I had a good friend call me and he's like, Tim, what happened? Do I need to fly down? He's from Byron. Do I need to fly down to Melbourne to bail you out? And so I felt it was quite liberating because I felt heard um, and I felt like my experiences were validated. But then when I stopped that, I would, I just remember cry, just crying. I just felt really sad and was just, just felt, yeah, just didn't know what to do. I'd never been in a situation like this before. Um, being held up against my will, like just having, like I said, my freedom robbed. And so, yeah, I even I haven't called like another psych. I called the I called the hospital to speak to a psychiatrist to get a second opinion because I think they had told me that I had bipolar affective disorder then, or that that's what the psychiatrist initially the the diagnosis she'd put on me. So I called to get a second opinion about what that meant. Okay, I've actually done that um, already, so I'm just wanted to get a second opinion. Uh, what is bipolar disorder exactly? What is bipolar disorder exactly? Um, to almost try to weasel my way out of the situation. Um, but everything was, was pretty futile. And then I remember being there for three or four hours. My auntie was there as well and lots of emotions. I was really angry at her. And she, yeah, it was really sad. She said, I think obviously it was a really difficult experience for her as well. But I remember just her looking at me and just saying, Tim, you're sick. You're sick. And I just didn't believe it. It felt very hurtful, like her saying that.
0: Um, Do you think looking back they um, handled it? how do I say this? Yeah, I guess the best way, do you think they could have handled it differently? Like even though
1: I think it's, yeah, it's really challenging. Like because they care, my family cares about me so much and it was a totally new experience for them. Like no one in my family from what I know had ever like had mental health issues like that before. And you know, you grow up with someone who you think you know, and then all of a sudden your experience of them is totally different. And, yeah, you you don't know who this person is anymore. Um, and so I think that's just the natural response is to seek help from what they know, from their lens of the world. And, and they're, they're wanting me to just um, be better or just you know, return back to normal. But in hindsight, and having conversations with them, I think I felt very disempowered by that. It it might, like, I think going to the psych ward may have, yeah, might have turned out of a good thing just from the the way I was overspending and and just the, yeah, my life was very out of control in what I was doing. So it may have been that or it may have been prison and so I think it it may have been a good thing but I just felt like I wasn't heard and that I had to share my experience to hundreds of people in order to feel like someone else was hearing me so yeah I I spent a few hours in that holding space and then um, just two paramedics came to, to take me from the holding space I went into an ambulance and was like strapped into the ambulance to take me to the psychiatric hospital in Dandenong, and I remember I was live streaming that as well in the back of a ho- back of the ambulance to go to the hospital. Alright, I'm just live from the ambulance. They're transporting me to Dandenong Hospital. Some crazy stuff. So I'm just I'm huge on social media. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, and so you know the VIP service. Apparently it's national laws. So we'll see what happens when we get there. And I got there pretty late at night. And it was just so surreal. It was like, I was, I don't know, I wasn't, I was watching a movie or something. I was like, I couldn't believe that I was in that situation because nothing like this had ever happened. I was very much a conformist. Like I'd conformed to authority in the past and I'd never got in trouble with the law or Just being in this situation was very surreal. And yeah, when I got there and just seeing other patients around and having a chat with this nurse about feeling disempowered, and the first nurse I talked to was actually really nice and validated my experiences. When I got there, it was very much like, I wanna take my parents to court and I'm gonna take my auntie to, gonna take them to the tribunal. I wanna like um, fight against this case. I feel like this is a huge injustice. I wanted to do medical tests on me to prove that I wasn't insane, that I was feeling great. And yeah, it was just, it was really tough. And then I got sent to my room, which, um, which didn't have a door. It was very, the whole space was very white and like clean and very devoid of creativity. There was kind of like a courtyard with this beaten down basketball hoop but it was just a very sterile space with just people kind of, when I was there, it was pretty scattered, just meandering and not really doing anything. I remember meeting, um, there was a woman when I first got there and I had like a lot of, I used to wear really good clothes all the time, almost like party clothes. I was like, I feel good about myself. I'm just gonna wear these cool clothes. And then this girl, the first thing she said to me was like, oh, who brought the party? Um, something like that (laughs) um but going back into my room it was yeah there was a bed there was a shower um with a mini bathroom but it was just again and there was a cupboard but it was just white and like boring and my first sleep there was very i was so i was bonkered i was so tired so exhausted still messaging friends and still video chatting And they let you keep your phone. Yeah, yeah, in the room. Like, you weren't allowed to film, even though I wanted to, like, expose this place. I actually had a GoPro with me in my room, and they found it later on, but I wasn't using that. Um, But I wanted to, like, expose this place to society. I actually wrote an email to Four Corners saying, like, how fucked up this psych ward is. Um, But, yeah, just things like the... When the nurse... Yeah, the nurse would come, like, periodically throughout the night and open the door to make sure that people weren't self-harming or committing suicide and even when i first got there you like get a series of questions always a series of questions do you want to hurt yourself do you have thought do you have suicide ideation like it's very much that's the line of thinking is like preventing self-harm it's not really looking at healing like this holding space there's very little healing that i felt went on it's very much like preventing further psychotic breakdowns.
0: And were thoughts like that going through your head?
1: No. No, I was very, it was like the opposite of that. I just wanted to help society. I was very positive. I was very enthusiastic. I was angry at like authority and the establishment, but I still loved myself when I was in there. I was very happy and I was like, these thoughts are and I was like critically thinking about the thoughts around the questions. So one of the questions was like, do you believe you have superhero powers? Um, And I was like, what do you mean by superhero powers? And the doctor was like, you think you can fly? I'm like, obviously I can't fly. Um. (laughs) So I would like like question some of the the questions that were asked. Yeah, it was a very, I I drank a lot of coffee. I, I met a lot of interesting characters in there as well people that had really severe traumatic experiences that kind of my experiences paled compared to the severity of what some people went through there's like two psychiatric facilities one for like people that have had really really severe experiences they go straight into where they have to like they stay in their rooms and they can't really go out because they're so they're like danger to themselves and still exhibiting a lot of very extreme behavior and then my one was more people that either went straight there or aren't like exhibiting violent behavior it was interesting i i I had my phone in there and i was video i was blogging but then i also had a chat with some people that wanted to share their story why are you in here (laughs) i've got schizophrenia matey what's that (laughs) schizophrenia we've got another crazy lady joining us put her on put her on (laughs) we're all crazy man going, you're going on, facebook. I put it on facebook and yeah i just kind of i felt like i wanted to enliven the space because it was so sterile so every afternoon i would get my ipad out and i would just play music and then people could just play whatever songs they wanted to and so we would like play Two Pack, just like on loudspeaker just resonating across the psych ward Um, I remember there was this Afghani guy who rarely talked, and he would just like pace up and down, just eating an apple, just crunching into an apple. He had frizzy hair, and no one really knew what had happened to him. He was there for like months, and we didn't really know what happened. And then he kind of saw us listening to music, and he, he goes to me, hey, can I listen to a song? And I said, yeah, go for it, man. No worries. And so he puts on this Afghani music, and then he just... It comes to life and just starts dancing like like traditional Afghani moves and just like livens up and it was just so good. But I still had a lot of anxiety when I was in there. So to work with that anxiety, I would drink a lot of and we weren't allowed cigarettes. Like I wasn't I smoked a lot back then to kinda of deal with my the anxiety that I had all these racing thoughts to calm me down. And we didn't have cigarettes, so yeah I would interest- interestingly drank a lot of coffee I don't know if it was caff didn't have caffeine or not and I would go out and just like do slam dunks on the basketball court and Then we started getting people in that had brought like smuggled in cigarettes And so what we would do is like having a conversation on the table He would like pass under a cigarette and a lighter and then we would go into our rooms And I would like sit on the toilet put on the hot shower and then just like smoke the cigarette into the steam um, and then because I I knew I was like I was on the toilet and I could easily if someone a nurse came I was I'm taking a shit go away so I just like smoke the cigarette into the steam and then like wrap it in toilet paper and just flush it down um, the nurses start started catching on to that we were doing this and they actually one of, one of the girls actually went into and caught her doing it and she got punished somehow but yeah, I, I kind of had a strategy that I was I would do this pretty regularly. And then I remember one nurse came. He didn't come into the toilet, but he kind of came into the room. And then I got angry. I'm like, dude, what the fuck are you stalking me? I got angry from him just like, what do you think I'm doing? It's like, I don't need someone to babysit me all the time and just to <laughs> look up. Um. So yeah, that was, a, it was really interesting to reflect on. Another, another thing as well um, that I'm thinking of now is that I had like, regular assessments from psychiatrists the first psychiatrist i had was very well decorated like he'd published a lot of academic papers he was in national talks on mental health had done a shit ton of research on like bipolar bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and he spoke to me and and i very just asked questions and i started ranting i just felt like he had a very pigeonholed view of me and I was just challenging him a lot on what he was saying and he kind of said you have I asked so what do I have or something like that and then he said you have very matter of fact it was like you have bipolar affective disorder um, and I'm going to give you olanzapine which is a an antipsychotic drug and you'll find that it will make you much better and then I said so when when because I wanted to get out, this is early on. It's like, when can I leave? And he said, three days. And in my mind, that was like an eternity. I was like, get me out of this place. And so then I just did not lie, I just stormed out of there and had like a cry in my room. I just like felt totally disempowered that he'd just, this guy just come in, didn't know me, didn't know my experiences and just got, you know, pigeonholed me into this disorder, said that I needed this drug. And, and essentially locked me up for an extra three days. And I just, yeah, I felt like shit. And then I, I just wanted to research up his accolades and just like get his name out there and say this guy's a terrible person. So I like, look, I asked him for his LinkedIn, like in the interview, I'm like, what's your LinkedIn? And he didn't, he didn't tell me his name, but then I, I found, looked at the papers and, and I said, hmm, so this guy, you know, he's published this academic, did this in my live blog on Facebook. <laughs> um, this guy's published this paper. And I fuck yeah, fucking hated him. Did I did not, and and still now, I I just don't think it's a good. It's like great. You've published. You've done all this research, which is good, but this isn't the way to talk to people. People don't. People want to feel heard and validated. So there's two contrasting approaches. One psychiatrist who is very. Th- you know, know it all. This is what you have based on your symptoms and what you're saying and your behaviour. This is the diagnosis, the box that we're going to put you into, and this is the medication that was shown is demonstrated to be effective with this condition. And the other psychiatrist who was honest and say and said, "Hey, we don't know that much about you know your or, or bipolar or, or what." Um, is effective against the treatment things work differently for different people you know let's go what do you feel and and i ended up um, taking lithium which is the most actually made the biggest difference and was um the most natural compound as well but yeah so eventually finally i was able to slowly get out of there i remember getting like one hour visits to go outside initially i couldn't couldn't leave the psychiatric center at all started getting visits of like one hour two hour and then finally um, I was able to leave the psychiatric hospital and I got given the option to go to this rehabilitation center called Y Parks in Danone where it's much more healing and therapeutic and community based um, and you get your own room and they provide your own food and you do cooking every day so that was really challenging and then throughout that i was still trying to keep up with uni work and i was having regular conversations with the organizational therapist there and started taking lithium and then i just got to the stage of like i'm just really tired i think i want to go back home to byron bay and so that's where i decided to just put uni on a hold for the rest of the year this is in april 2017 And I had a wedding of a friend coming up in Byron. So yeah, I flew flew back to Byron Bay and then saw some psychiatrist there. I was very, very blessed um, that when I came back to Byron, I got work straight away. And so I was able to like make up this deficit of being, I think I ended up, my worst was like being $800 or something in debt to my parents. And I was lucky to get a full-time job um, working at the pizza restaurant that I'd worked at growing up or when i finished high school and so yeah within a month i think my mood started to stabilize but then around may i just started dipping and going into a pretty bad state of depression and that was it was almost like it was the total opposite of instead of having racing thoughts i just couldn't think and i became very anxious to engage engaged in conversation i didn't know what to say I, taking anything at this point um, no I'd, I'd stopped as soon as I went back to Byron, I just completely stopped all of the medication like stopped taking the lithium I just didn't really want to engage with that waking up and just feeling like shit and I was very I was comparing myself to other people a lot thinking that um, I wasn't progressing in life just all of like the the negative self-feedback loops and I really saw no way out of that. I was very i was quite lucky that my my dad encouraged me to do and also the psychiatrist encouraged me to do exercise every day and so yeah i would try to either go for a bike ride and like force myself to go for a bike ride even though i wanted to or go for a short run and what it would do it would just like add a little bit to my mood like a tiny i still felt like shit, and still felt like i was in this black hole that i couldn't escape but it would, it would make me feel a little bit better. Um, and then, yeah, I decided actually to go. So after a couple of months, I'd worked at the pizza restaurant and earned back a bit a bit of money and then decided to go overseas and go, go traveling while still in this pretty depressive state. Um, I always felt this longing to go back to Sweden. And so I was able to do that in July of that month and so yeah I spent like a week in Sweden and then my sister who was studying in Sweden at the time we hired a car in Sweden and then went on this huge road trip in Norway which was it's really strange it's like a, a distant memory now and I was in a pretty depressed state and it was really challenging traveling and staying in hostels and having to meet people and I was very socially anxious I was smoking a lot to kind of I don't know distract myself or make myself feel a bit better and I felt like I couldn't contribute to conversations I couldn't actually talk to people the only thing that I could do was tell my Indian story like that was still very real and I was always living in my India experience when I was traveling and so it'd be like hey where are you from and then that asked me I'm, I'm from Australia but I, you know I just went to India and had all this experience And then I'd go into this intense ex- and like talking about the shaman within like two minutes of meeting someone and so that would like bring up a lot of different responses from different travelers like some people just thought this guy's you know it's a figment of your imagination he's talking a bunch of shit. i've only just met you and other people would be like holy crap have you met this guy tim you should hear his india story um but it would be for me in that depressed state it was like a a rock that i could hold myself through social situations It was what I relied upon because I was so anxious. And so, yeah, I did that for a month and then I flew back to Australia. I think it was like in October 2017, after a couple of months in Europe, and then had a wedding. And when I got back, I was very sleep deprived and still like very, very depressed. And even at the wedding, I found it challenging to meet people and just didn't, I didn't know what I wanted to do with myself. I was like, had didn't think I had a future. And then... These
0: are the thoughts that were creating the depression? Like, were they... What thoughts were going through your head in this dark state that you're in?
1: Yeah, just like a low sense of self-worth. Just, you know, I'm... Just, yeah, worthlessness. Not knowing what I want to do. Comparing myself to other people. It's like looking at social media a lot and feeling jealous of what other people were doing. Um, And just not seeing a future, just like, but just not being happy, just being in like this perpetual state of just feeling like shit. Gradually, I started feeling better, like better mood. So I would go from like feeling 50% back to normal to 60% to 70%. And then my cognition started coming back. Um, and so, I, yeah, gradually, gradually improved my mood, and I really think that I probably it's probably a result of feeling in such a high state for three or four months, being in such a an ecstatic, manic state, that that was almost like a counterbalance to that. I really think regularly doing exercise was really powerful, and it, it also like helped me feel a sense of achievement every day. Like a tiny, tiny little sense of achievement, and then working at the Earth and Sea, and talk being, you know, forced out of my comfort zone, still connecting with people, and I'm like, I'm I'm ready, ready to go, and so I ended up moving back to Melbourne, I think February, February the next year, and I really just went from strength to strength. I found a really cool share house in Glen Waverley, and restarted my course. It was it took me a little while to get going. Um, but my yeah, my housemates and I just was randomly, one day, I think one night, I, I had a chat with a, a girl I was doing a course with and she said that she's gonna, she was going to do the Melbourne half marathon. And so I went back to my housemates, I'm like, hey, I've got this crazy idea, let's do the half marathon. And then I had a German housemate and he's like, why would we do the half marathon? Why go half in? Why don't we just do the full marathon? And at this point, I hadn't run more than like five or six kilometers. So a full marathon was so out of my vision of possibility. But I'm like, fuck it, let's just let's just do it. This is like maybe two and a half months out. So we all made a plan and we just ran. We would just jog like three times a week and just gradually built up the distance and we held each other accountable. And I got a few injuries along the way, but we just we were just I I don't think I would be as disciplined if my housemates we didn't like get up early mornings and we didn't keep it so was accountable and yeah it was a huge achievement or I felt um, like I had it, it was almost like a I'd come out of this crazy year which is 2017 to then run a marathon at the end of 2018 with the Melbourne Marathon I just felt like yeah it was a crazy thing to do and doing the marathon was like one of the best things i've done it's like working towards something for three months nothing you could do it and then just running it and yeah since since 2018 and and since running that marathon i've just felt like i've gone step to step and then life's just been really good to me i've been able to follow my passion with education i've really um created a really great community of friends in Melbourne, got a great girlfriend. Yeah, I'm really excited about the, about the future.
0: At the end of our interview, I still believe my first impression of Tim was correct, but it's been a real journey for him to arrive at this destination, to find balance between chaos and order. And in doing so, he's seen both sides in their extremes. In editing this episode, I found myself asking some of the same questions as when I started. Why do some of us need to push ourselves to our limits to feel satisfied? To learn our lesson? To discover something new? Is it out of frustration? Do we despise one part of ourselves so much that we feel a relentless compulsion to prove that we can be different? And in reaching that extreme, is it only then that we feel we've succeeded? Like many people, Tim has hated things about himself. And like many people, he's fought to prove that he's more than the things he despised. But what's become clear throughout our interview is that he's always been the same person. He's just found himself in situations that a lot of us haven't. This interview got me thinking about certain experiences I've had, especially in foreign countries, that have taught me a lot about what I'm capable of, and more importantly, what I'm not capable of.
1: Early in childhood, my life was very... Chaotic. It was really difficult to have a sense of home moving from Sweden to Australia all the time and flexing between having friendship groups, going to different schools, having different cultural experiences and then moving almost permanently to Byron Bay and going through primary school and high school and being such a disciplined student, almost religiously doing my homework all the time and getting great results. I had such structure. And I think throughout life, we go through these balances of chaos versus structure or like routine and discipline versus freedom and adventure taking and risk taking. And so I think because I went through such a long period of structure throughout high school that I really needed a release into chaos, almost the other end of the spectrum. And I actually think that my experiences traveling and what happened in India directly relates to the chaos of my childhood. It's because I never firmly had my feet grounded in myself and also because I feel like my mum was so out of her comfort zone that she grounded herself and felt safe in me that I never really felt totally safe or secure within myself. And I think that's really what led to my willingness to go out into the chaos of India and me, myself feeling passionately about going into the wilderness and trying these new experiences and getting involved in psychedelic drugs, um, meeting interesting characters, not wanting to have a plan from day to day and just go on my feet. And so I went so far into chaos almost as far as you can go into the forest of chaos without killing myself, including the psychiatric hospital, that I've now, in hindsight and reflecting, have realized that the answer is neither structure or chaos. Like life is not best lived um, on the extremes of either. But like Jordan Peterson says, I think life is best lived on the edge of structure and chaos. I think it's really important that we have like routines and structures and familiarity to ground ourselves and really do a lot of work to, to know who we are, um, embodiment work, know, know our bodies, know ourselves, really understand how has our childhood trauma affected who we are today. I think that allows us to, to ground ourselves and, yeah, building build in predictability in everyday life through whatever means, whether it's morning routines or familiar friendship groups or partners or, you know, any, anything to, to, to ground ourselves in structure. But then it's really important, I think, to have spontaneity, to have chaos, to do creative work, to go traveling, to do things out of our comfort zone. But still being rooted in in structure because what I I felt like I've always had is either or the experiences of in India I had no sense of groundedness I had nothing to root myself um, I felt and it was almost this exhilarating sense of freedom that it's like I've got no responsibilities here I can do whatever the fuck I want I can buy a motorbike and just go crazy traveling and, and I've got no no accountability but I think that actually If that's unchecked, that can lead to paranoia and schizophrenia. That is like, I think schizophrenia is like the nth degree of chaos. And I think someone like never leaving their home or not doing anything, just doing things predictable is the other end of the spectrum. Would I ever go back to, you know, smoking weed every now and again? or taking a psychedelic drugs when all of, you know psychiatrists have said, "Hey, you've had this experience. It's like a broken arm. If you try it again, you might be propelled back into the state of mania. And I think to myself, I'm, I'm not there yet, and I don't really feel the need to. But I feel like as long as I know who I am and I understand where my traumas come from and I'm rooted and I'm grounded, then I don't, I, I don't have um, yeah, I, I could explore weed or psychedelics if I felt like it was the right time and it's what I was drawn to. It. But I think it's, it's it needed to happen. It's like I was following, following my intuition to go there and I would live I'd be living with a regret now if I didn't explore India because that was such a strong desire of mine at the time. To explore it. So do you feel like you got
0: that balance now that you couldn't get in high school and didn't have in India? Do you feel like you have that now?
1: Um, I'm working on it. I'm like, I'm aware of it. Like I understand. Um, one of my values now, which I don't think it was before, is like truth. Like what what is, what's truth? What is a life best lived? Uh, and understanding that. My childhood trauma, any trauma that I've had in my life, doesn't have to be extreme, is influencing my behaviours today. I'm just, I think, I feel like I've gained a lot of wisdom though from my experiences of what is going too far, what is unchecked. I, I, I almost took too, too much fruit from Eden's nectar. I like wanted too much, I was too addicted to the feeling of, of it. Of, of smoking the hatch and, and of like this crazy love. But I feel a lot more stable now in like what I want to do with my life.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode. Be sure to join us next time for another adventure on the Residence Podcast.